In the early 1900s, James Fraser moved from London, England, down to Southeast China uh, to take the good news of Jesus to the Lisu people who live on the border right between China and Myanmar. So he moved there. His heart was for the people who lived in these remote villages who had never heard the gospel of Jesus. He befriended them, learned the language, started to share the good news of Jesus with them, but there was resistance. There was opposition. Uh, one or two said they were trusting Christ, came to faith in Christ, but then ended up changing their minds and walking away. Very hard time. Much disappointment. And this went on week after week, month after month. James Fraser was facing opposition. He became discouraged. He wondered if maybe he was wasting his time. He wondered if maybe he had missed God's call, if it was wrong to move to Southeast China. Now, later on this morning, I'm going to tell you what ended up happening with James Frazier. It is an encouraging story. But at this point, let me just ask you, what do you do when you face a situation like James Frazier faced? What do you do when you're facing opposition? You're, you're following God's call, but difficulties arise. Problems come up. Frustrations develop. What do you do? Maybe you've tried reaching out to people in, in the city with the good news of Jesus, befriending them, serving them, sharing the good news, but you haven't seen any fruit. No one's come to faith in Christ yet. Maybe it's the difficulties of parenting, which is a unique challenge during this lockdown season. It's hard and you're, you're facing problems. Maybe that's the difficulty, the, the frustrations you're facing. Maybe you've tried to reach out to some fellow believers just to build them up, to strengthen them in their faith, have some mutual discipleship, but it really hasn't clicked. It hasn't really borne fruit that you were hoping for. So here's the question. What do you do when you face difficulties, opposition on the path of obeying God's will? Do you give up? Do you assume you've missed God's call? What do you do? Now, the reason I ask this is because this morning we're going to see what Jesus does when he faces opposition. He doesn't give up. He doesn't assume he missed God's call. He does something else, which I think you will find deeply encouraging this morning. I know I have. So let's turn to Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 16. And as you're turning there, get your paper Bible out. You're there at home. You can make notes in the margins, underline words. But remember, Luke is writing history. And when authors write history, they're not just telling us what happened. They're choosing certain events to emphasize, and they're highlighting certain aspects of those events in order to teach us particular truths. So my goal this morning is to help us see what I think Luke is teaching in these three events from Luke 6, verses 1 through 16. Three different paragraphs here. So let's start with verses 1 through 5. Here Luke describes how the Pharisees criticize Jesus' disciples for plucking and eating grains of wheat on the Sabbath. Now, why does Luke emphasize this? Why does he tell us about the Pharisees' criticizing Jesus' disciples. Start with verse 1. On a Sabbath, 
while he was going through the grain fields, he being Jesus, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. So this took place on the Sabbath. Now remember what the Sabbath was. God had given the Sabbath to Israel as a day to rest, one day a week to rest, to worship God, to be refreshed in body and soul, not to do any work, just to rest and be refreshed in the Lord that day, one day a week. But here's the problem. The Pharisees had taken the Old Testament teaching about the Sabbath, and they had distorted it. Okay? God gave the Sabbath as a way to bring blessing to people. But the Pharisees had twisted it so that it was a means by which they could be exalted above other people. And they did this by adding commands to it that were not taught in the Old Testament at all. For example, they said you couldn't pick grains of wheat on the Sabbath. That's working. We see that in this paragraph here. It's not what the Old Testament ever said. They said you can't heal someone on the Sabbath. That's working. The Old Testament never said that either. They said you can't pick up your bedding on the Sabbath. They said that after Jesus had healed a sick man who was now able to stand up and pick up his bedding, and they said he shouldn't do that because that's working. The Old Testament didn't say that either. So they took God's beautiful, wonderful law about the Sabbath, and they ruined it. So instead of blessing the people, which was its intention, these Sabbath laws just ended up exalting the Pharisees above the people, made them look more righteous than everyone else. And it was that righteousness that they had because of all these extra commands that gave them their position in society, their power in society, and their financial well-being in society. So picture it like this. See if this illustration helps. It really helped me. There's a lot of confusion about what is the law. I mean, David says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. David loved God's law. But we also read things that make the law sound it's too strict like in this passage here. So here's an illustration that I heard from another pastor years ago that, that has really helped me. God gave Israel the law as a train track, a train track, which, which would move people ahead towards being forgiven by trusting what God would do through the Messiah. And so because they're forgiven, they're reconciled to God, they're experiencing God's presence filling and satisfying their hearts so their hearts are changed and they overflow with love for other people, for all the nations. That's what, that was God's intention. The law is a train track leading people to God and to be people of love and compassion. The Pharisees took that train track, pulled it up out of the ground, turned it into a ladder so they could climb up it. Not in order to get to God, but in order to be above all the other people in their righteousness. So they're up there on their, on their ladder looking down at all the people. Okay? So picture the Pharisees. There they up on, they're up on their ladder, feeling righteous, impressing everyone around them. Okay? And now there's a problem. Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus' disciples are ignoring their ladder, the Pharisees' ladder. They're picking and eating grains of wheat. Now, that would have made all the Pharisees up on their ladder, made them look foolish. Jesus isn't correcting his disciples. Jesus is ignoring the ladder. That would have threatened the Pharisees' position, their power, and their financial well-being. 
So that's why in verse 2 we read, verse 2, but some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Verse 3, and Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. Now, you can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David and his men are fleeing from Saul, who wants to kill David. They're on the run, and they need food. They're hungry. They need food. So they went into the temple and asked the priest if he had any food. All he had was the bread of the presence. These 12 loaves were freshly baked regularly. There they were, which only the priests were supposed to eat. But in great compassion, the priest gave it to David and his men. So they were strengthened and could keep fleeing from Saul. And there is no hint in this passage in the Old Testament that the priest did anything wrong. So what's Jesus' point here? His point in telling the story is to help the Pharisees see they have distorted, misunderstood, twisted the Old Testament. The Old Testament was not a ladder that we climb up to show that we are more righteous than other people with no thought of compassion or care or love for them. That's not the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a wonderful railroad track which leads people to trusting what God would do through the Messiah so they can be forgiven for their sins, have their hearts filled with God, they know God, and then they're overflowing with love and compassion for others. That's what God's law was to be. And that's why it's fine for the disciples to be plucking grains and eating them on the Sabbath. But now understand how threatening this would have been for the Pharisees to hear. Their position, their power, their financial well-being depended on everyone thinking that their ladder is really important. Look at those Pharisees up there on that ladder. Wow, look at how righteous they are. And Jesus is letting his disciples ignore the Pharisees' ladder. Jesus is saying the Pharisees are wrong about their ladder. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, Get down off the ladder. And that would have threatened them. But what would have threatened them even more is what Jesus says in the next verse, verse 5. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean? Jesus often calls himself the Son of Man in the Gospels. It's all over the Gospels. So what does it mean? What it means is that Jesus is saying that he is the fulfillment of a very important Old Testament prophecy about the Son of Man. Here it is. It's in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Look at what we read. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. There it is. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was presented before him. And to him, this one like a son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. 
and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, this is a prophecy about the Messiah. It's about Jesus. See, after Jesus died on the cross, paying for our sins, he rose from the dead, and then he ascended to heaven. And when he did, he was presented to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and God gave him dominion, authority, a kingdom, glory, that would last forever so that everyone would serve him. And Jesus calls himself the Son of Man throughout the Gospels, so everyone will understand he is the Son of Man described in Daniel 7. He is the Messiah who has been given dominion, glory, and a kingdom so that people from all different nations, tongues, and tribes will serve him. But Jesus doesn't just say he's the Son of Man here. Look what else he says, verse 5. He said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Whoa. Think about that. Remember, it was God who commanded the Sabbath. The Sabbath was one of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So God commanded the Sabbath. But now think about that. If God commanded the Sabbath and Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, what does that make Jesus? It makes him God, equal to God the Father in every way. So see what's happening here. Jesus is not just content to correct the Pharisees' understanding of the Sabbath. Jesus loves them too much for that. He wants to correct them about himself. Because it's only as they see Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel 7, the Son of God, and how they've sinned, and how the Messiah's death can pay for their sins so that they can repent and trust him, be forgiven, connected to God, and changed. That'll only happen as they rightly understand who the Messiah is. And so in this first paragraph, Jesus does more than just answer their question about the Sabbath. The main point, the punchline of this paragraph is, he tells them about himself. So, the main point of chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, is that Jesus declares that he is the Lord, the Messiah. Whoa. That brings us to the second paragraph, verses 6 through 11. What does Luke emphasize next? This is amazing. Start with verse 6. On another Sabbath, still Sabbath theme, he entered the synagogue and was teaching... And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Now, the Old Testament never said it was wrong to heal on the Sabbath. But the scribes and Pharisees wanted to add another rung onto the ladder, so they said, wrong to heal on the Sabbath. Look at us up here. We're so much even more righteous now. And they knew that Jesus healed the sick. And so they were watching to see if he would heal so they could accuse him. Now look at verse 8. But he, Jesus, knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. So Jesus knows the Pharisees want to accuse him of healing. So, so what does Jesus do? 
Does he wait and maybe take the man aside after the synagogue service is over? Take the man aside privately? Let me heal you here so that the Pharisees can't see. Is that what Jesus does? No. It's amazing what he does. See, he knows that the Pharisees' sin has twisted and misunderstood the Old Testament. He wants to have them see what they've done to the Old Testament. He wants to have the Pharisees see their sin so they will trust him as the Messiah and be forgiven. So what does Jesus do? He calls to the man with the withered hand. Excuse me, sir, could, could you stand up and, and come forward here? And the man with the withered hand is standing right next to Jesus. So, so picture this. This is in front of the whole synagogue. There's the man with the withered hand standing right next to Jesus. Everybody is watching and wondering what's going to happen. Verse 9. And Jesus said to them, to the Pharisees, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? Now, look at what Jesus has done. What can they say? If they say, oh, it's lawful to do good and heal somebody on the Sabbath, that takes away their ladder. But if they say, it's lawful to do harm on the Sabbath, well, that condemns their ladder. So Jesus has publicly painted them into a corner. The only right answer is, our ladder's wrong. We were wrong. But in their sin, they won't answer the question. Why not? Because they love their ladder too much. They love their position of seeming righteousness above other people. They love their position and power too much. Then verse 10. And after looking around at them all, he said to him, the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. I mean, picture this. Here's the man standing up in front of not only the Pharisees, but the whole synagogue is watching. And this man has a withered hand, probably all twisted and gnarled up and just like held down by his side. But Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And, and when, when the man does, his hand just miraculously is healed and restored so he can completely use it. So how did the Pharisees respond to this? Did they own up to this is a miracle. God is here in our midst. This is glorious. Is that how they responded? Did they admit that he was the Messiah and get off their ladders and trust him? No. That's not what they did. Verse 11. But they were filled with fury. Don't threaten our ladder. And discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So what's the main point of verses 6 through 11? Well, in verses 1 through 5, the main point is that Jesus declares that he is the Lord, the Messiah. In verses 6 through 11, then, the main point is that the religious leaders are furious with him. So we see growing opposition, escalating difficulties, increasing problems for Jesus here. So let's look at the third paragraph then, verses 12 through 16, and ask, how does Jesus Respond. Now, just to put ourselves in Jesus' shoes a little bit here, imagine that you were in a country where all the religious leaders were filled with fury against you and were plotting how they could destroy you. That's a lot of opposition that Jesus was facing here. 
So how does he respond? Verse 12, start there. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Now notice, Luke moves right from opposition against Jesus growing to Jesus praying. And see, that's not, it's not trivial. Um, there's a reason for this, not random. Luke has a purpose for moving right from the growing opposition to Jesus' prayer. And Luke's purpose, I believe, is to show us that Jesus responds to growing opposition by increasing in prayer, by praying. Notice, Jesus here prays intensely. It's not every night that Jesus stayed up all night to pray. This was unusual for Jesus. So when Jesus faced opposition, he specially devoted himself to prayer. Opposition comes to him, I need to pray. Problems arise, I need to pray. That's how Jesus responded to opposition. Now, you may be wondering, why did Jesus need to pray? I mean, Jesus is God in the flesh. That's exactly right, he, he is. But when Jesus became a man, he laid aside the use of his privileges and powers that he has as God. He laid aside the use of those and took on human weakness, took on human nature, took on human flesh. He never sinned. He never stopped being God. But he laid aside the use of the divine powers and privileges that he had as God, which means he needed help from God the Father. He needed strength. He needed comfort, he needed encouragement, he needed guidance, he needed wisdom. So all night long, he prays. All night long, he's worshiping the Father. He's thanking the Father. He's asking the Father for help, for strength, for counsel, for guidance, for encouragement. All night long, from 10 to 11, from 11 to 12, from 12 to 1, all night long, praying, 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 praying. Then verse 13, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Now, Jesus had many disciples. There were many who decided to follow him and, and, and trust him and, and, and proceed as he traveled through doing his ministry. There were many disciples. And the next day, from all of these disciples, Jesus chose 12 to be his apostles. Now, the word apostle means a sent one, somebody who was sent out. So Jesus chose these 12 men to be specially with him, whom he would specially train and specially gift, and then send out to continue the ministry, to expand, to enlarge the ministry. And Luke lists them by name. Verse 14, Simon, whom he, called, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So here's what I think is going on in this paragraph. Here's the main point of verses 12 through 16. Again, verses 1 through 5, Jesus declares he is the Lord and the Messiah. Verses 6 through 11, the religious leaders are furious with him. There's growing opposition. So, verses 12 through 16, Jesus responds by praying and choosing the 12 apostles. 
So I think the main point of this, this three-event section is that Jesus responds to opposition by praying. I think that's the main point here. Now let's focus on that. And this is important to see that this is how Jesus responds to opposition because all of us either are facing opposition right now, many of you I'm sure are, or you will be in the future. Every follower of Jesus faces opposition. Like I said earlier, maybe it's in your parenting. Maybe it's in your trying to get a, a regular daily time of reading the scriptures and seeking God's face in prayer. Maybe it's in sharing the gospel with people, befriending people who aren't trusting Christ, longing to see them be saved and forgiven and brought into the presence of the Lord to be with him forever. Maybe you haven't seen much fruit in that. Maybe, maybe you've been trying to develop some faith-building relationship with other believers, but it just hasn't really clicked. So whether you are now or will be, every follower of Jesus faces opposition. So what did Jesus do when he faced opposition? He prayed. Not just his usual routine of prayer, but he devoted an entire night to pray. He sought God's face. He cried for help. He asked God for wisdom. He pleaded with God for strength. And God answered him. And one of the ways God answered him was by giving him a clear next step. Choose 12 apostles. And by giving him wisdom as to who those 12 apostles should be. And in the rest of Luke, we see that this step of choosing these apostles, equipping them, training them, gifting them, and then sending them out to expand the ministry, spread the ministry of the kingdom, spread the good news, the salvation of Jesus, far broader than it would have been done just through Jesus himself. So this morning, if you are facing opposition, what I believe God wants to say to you through this passage is, he's calling you to pray. When Jesus faced opposition, he prayed. And when we face opposition, we need to pray. Because when we pray, God will give us exactly what we need. When we face increasing opposition, we should respond by increasing prayer. More difficulties, more prayer. Bigger problems, bigger prayer. More difficult obstacles, more prayer. We respond to opposition with more prayer. And when we do, God will meet us and will give us exactly what we need. He gave Jesus exactly what he needed, strength and encouragement and a clear next step. And he will give you exactly what you need, strength and encouragement and a clear next step. And that's what James Frazier experienced, early 1900s. Remember I mentioned he was there in Southeast China, right between Myanmar and China, that border area, getting to know the Lisu people who'd never heard the gospel, learning their language, befriending them, starting to share the good news with them. But oh, there was opposition. Heartbreaking disappointments. One, trusting Christ seemingly, and then decided to walk away from the Lord. And, and resistance and frustrations and problems. And this went on for month after month after month after month. So what did James Frazier do? He continued to preach the gospel, continued to reach out to love and to care for them, but he also, in a renewed way, gave himself to prayer. When setbacks came, he prayed. When disappointments came, 
he prayed more. When frustrations and obstacles rose up, he prayed even more. He prayed and prayed and prayed, and what happened? One by one, Lisu people started to see the truth of Jesus, love the glory of Jesus, turn from their sin, receive all that Jesus is, be born again, be transformed. And they started to share the gospel as well, one by one, and then two by two, and then three by three. Slowly but surely, the gospel is spreading until finally, at the end of 10 years, 10 years, 60,000 Lisus had become followers of Jesus Christ and been baptized. Are you facing opposition? Then give yourself all the more to prayer. Now, what if you find that hard to do? You probably will. There's many times when I find it very hard to pray. Now, here's the good news, though. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not just pay for sin, past, present, and future for all those who will trust him. He also purchased for them everything that they would need to live the Christian life. He's already purchased everything that they need. And so because you are trusting Jesus this morning, God will give you everything you need to live the Christian life, including to be more devoted to prayer. He will give that to you. So, if you're struggling to pray, ask him for help. Father, help me to pray. Give me more fervency. Give me more faith. Give me more diligence. Give me more perseverance. Help me not stop so quickly. Help me to, to labor in prayer. Father, help me to pray. He will. He will help you to pray. And not only will he help you to pray, but when you respond to opposition by asking him to help you in prayer and then by praying more, he will give you everything that you need to deal with that opposition. He will give you everything you need to handle that opposition. After all, that's what he did for James Frazier. That's what he did for his son, Jesus. And that is what he will do for you. When we face growing opposition, we should commit to growing prayer. And as we do, God will give us everything we need. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for every one of us who now is facing opposition, that you would strengthen us, Lord, to pray. That when there's growing opposition, we would experience growing prayer. And we praise you that as we do that, you will give us everything that we need. So each one now in Grace Church who's facing difficulties, frustrations, opposition, strengthen us to pray. And we thank you that as we do that, you will give us everything that we need. And Father, I also want to pray for those here listening who are not yet trusting Christ, that right now they would see in this passage the glory of your son, Jesus, who is correcting the Pharisees with such strength and clarity and who is showing such power and compassion in healing this man with the withered hand. And Lord, that they would see that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel 7, the Messiah who pays for sins by dying on the cross. And Lord, that right now they would turn their hearts and put their trust in Jesus, turn from their sin, trust in Jesus, and be forgiven and reconciled with you, knowing your joy, knowing your love now and forever, God. I pray that you would do that. And we do worship you, Jesus. You are so loving and glorious and majestic. 
We worship you. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.